Hello, welcome back to Franklin Covey's new podcast, C-Suite Conversations with Scott Miller. That's me, the new Franklin Covey spinoff from what has now become the world's largest weekly leadership podcast known as On Leadership with Scott Miller. And if you're just joining us, you might be intrigued to learn that the reason we decided to launch a separate podcast was because after 200 episodes every week for three and a half years of On Leadership, we realized that, in fact, the most listened to and viewed episodes weren't always with the biggest celebrity or the biggest named author. They often were people that were in the C-suite, people that had leadership journeys just like yours and mine, two steps forward, sometimes one step back. And today, I'm delighted that the CEO of Hilton Worldwide, Chris Nacetta, is joining us as our newest guest. Chris, welcome to C-Suite Conversations. Scott, thanks for having me. Nothing I like to talk more about than leadership, so uh, real pleasure to be you know, on your new spinoff. Chris, I know that um, being in my presence is not a very big deal because you just mentioned off air that prior to joining our podcast today, you had a fairly well-known guest that you were meeting with. Talk us a bit. Of, talk a bit about your previous I did, well, meeting. I, I also, I, I do appreciate you telling me I'm not a celebrity because I do view myself as sort of a uh, lowly hotel person. No, I just had a meeting. We're we're, we're working on a on a. Uh, New Walter Pastoria, and one of the possible investors is Floyd Mayweather, uh, undefeated uh, boxing champion. So yeah, one of the one of the uh, many things that I love about my job and you know doing what I do for a living is I do get to meet with some really interesting people uh, like Floyd, uh, but a lot of others leaders all you know here in the United States, leaders all around the world. And um, the truth is, and there's a great leadership sort of message in this that that I've learned over over the years is like you know you pick up a, if you listen and you learn uh, and you engage with with uh, people whatever they may have excelled at um, whether it's boxing whether it's in politics whether it's in business you know there are all sorts of little pearls of wisdom that you know that you accumulate along the way. And probably the greatest leadership lesson I ever learned is, you know, it's a continuous journey. And as much as I'm super proud of what, what, what I've accomplished here at Hilton with a lot of help from a lot of folks and what I've done in my whole career, you know, I'm in a constant state of learning. I wake up every day thinking about what I can do better. And so all these interactions with these people, it's not about yeah. the celebrity and, you know, and the, and the glitz and the glamour. To me, it's about the human interaction and trying to get, you know, get, get trying to pick those pearls of wisdom um, from people that have accomplished uh, amazing things in their life and see and, and try and apply those um, to my own life to see if I can push myself to, to be better in a whole bunch of ways so that I'm ulti- ultimately a better father, husband, friend uh, and, and leader of this business. Uh, Beautifully said. Chris, in a few minutes, I'm going to ask you to kind of recreate what has been your own professional journey into the C-suite. But before we do that, would you take a few minutes and sort of reorient everybody to Hilton? I believe it was founded by Baron Hilton. Talk a bit about the legacy of the company and what it looks like in terms of a global footprint now. Yeah, the the company was founded approximately 100, almost 103 years ago by Conrad Hilton. uh, And Conrad Hilton actually was one of the great entrepreneurs and one of the great, uh, one of the first great international businessmen. But he actually didn't try and get into the hotel business. He was going to Cisco, Texas 
to try and buy a bank and the deal didn't work out. And him being the true entrepreneur that he was, he decided uh, he needed to buy something and he found an old hotel uh, in Cisco, Texas. And he started his first, a very small hotel and he started the business that way. Uh, and the rest is history. Today, you know, fast forward, we're, you know, we're more than the Hilton brand. We have 18 brands, you know, spanning from, you know, uh, mid-scale all the way through luxury. So probably at the lowest price point, true, but probably the largest brand by number of units is Hampton by Hilton, which probably everybody knows and has hopefully stayed in all the way up through Hilton and, and at the very top of the, of the food chain uh, in the luxury space. Walter Astoria, we have uh, about 400,000 team members that make all of this happen in uh, about 121, I think 122 countries uh, as of last week. Um, we have about 7,000 hotels. Uh, but most importantly, you know, this business has been and, and always will be a business of people serving people. Yeah. So we're very focused on our culture. Um, you know, the, one of the things that I'm most proud of is that we're the number one large place to work in the United States of America, the number three great place to work in the world, the number one uh, on Diversity Inc.'s list uh, in terms of diversity uh, in, in the United States. And so we're, you know, we're a very purposeful company from our founding. Um, we have, you know, but more dynamic than than ever. We are, I'm proud to say, opening more than a hotel a day in the world at this point. So every day, another fabulous Hilton-branded property opens somewhere in the world. Chris, uh, take your time. Walk us through your professional journey to the C-suite, starting with literally the first mm -hmm. job you ever had, and walk us through what that looks like. So I, you know, my parents' fabulous uh, mother and father gave me uh, an incredible, you know, value system. And, and part of that was hard work. Um, and so there was no, you know, allowance or, you know, anything given to us. If we wanted to have spending money or any of those things, we needed to, we needed to work for it. And, and, you know, my parents instilled a great work ethic in us. And I also come from very entrepreneurial roots, starting with my, my grandparents who were immigrants who came came to the country with nothing and built a bunch of businesses and the like. So when I was at my journey to the C-suite, you know, started as a very young kid, as an entrepreneur, uh, you know, doing all sorts of things. I had a paper business, paper, uh, newspaper business. I had a lawn mowing business, a snow plowing business, a painting business. I kind of figured out, you know, what anybody needed and I could make some money doing it. If I figured it out, you know, I was doing it. And uh, and so I spent, you know, my my teen years doing those sorts of things just to make sure that I, you know, had money to go to the movies and do the things that that you want to do. Um, but I got, you know, I got you know, interested in the hotel business because. Um, I needed to get something more of a real job to try out the, the uh, you know, at less of an entrepreneurial track. And I was in my teens, sort of in my later high school years and, and uh, early college years. And I said to my dad, I'm, you know, I'm in, I, I, you know, he suggested I needed to do something uh, a little bit more serious, um, you know, not just doing these miscellaneous entrepreneurial 
activities. And so I said, I was interested in the hotel business. And so he, you know, helped me figure out how to uh, get involved at the entry level. I'd like, I like to say, which is technically true, um, that my career started in the toilet because the first job I got was working at the Capitol Holiday Inn. I grew up in the Washington, D.C. area, and this was a Holiday Inn on 4th and C Street, still there, on Capitol Hill. And my job was, um, I was the, at the lowest level in the engineering department. And so essentially what that meant in that day was um, I, I fixed the toilets. In other words, I, I fixed, uh, I unclogged toilets. So my <laughs> career in hospitality literally did start in the toilet, but it gave me a really good understanding, you know, of how hotels work you know, from, from behind the walls. I mean, as a customer, uh, the good news about our business is everybody sort of gets it at some level because almost everybody on earth, uh, uh, you know, or most people have been in hotels, so you see it, but what you don't see is what goes on behind the walls and the complexity of what's happening to deliver these experiences. So at a very early age, I got a chance to sort of get behind the walls and figure it out a little bit. And I really liked what I saw um, and so it sort of piqued my interest. I then, you know, went on to, you know, get an education. My education, I went to the University of Virginia, McIntyre School of Commerce. Ultimately, I got a degree in finance. And so when I got out, um, I didn't get directly into the hotel business, but, but I got in, you know, uh, in a traditional sense from an operating point of view. But I did, I did get into the, develop, the real estate development business on the hotel side working for a company called Oliver Carr, one of the largest developers in the Mid-Atlantic, largest developer in the D.C. area, working on, on a hotel called The Willard, which is a beautiful hotel office complex on Pennsylvania Avenue in Washington, D.C. And, you know, but, I, for, you know, I wasn't involved in the operations, more on the financing and the development of it, um, and um, had a really fascinating experience in that regard, and then morphed into doing a bunch of other things in the real estate development side. So I built lots of office buildings and um, retail and some multifamily. I did, you know, a bunch of different things, frankly, a lot more out of hotels than inside hotels. And, you know, so I was, you know, on a, on a career track, mainly on the development side. And then the, um, and, had, and had a wonderful experience. Then the SNL crisis hit. And, um, you know, way, way back when in the, in the early 90s, and uh, seems like a, a lifetime ago and the world went upside down and if you were in a real estate business it almost didn't matter who you were or where you were it was a very difficult time and um i had the opportunity given the role i was playing in the company to sort of help them figure out how to make it through that very difficult time and i was in my you know in my late 20s at this point and so if you were to say to me, like, what, where did I get the best education? And I'm not diminishing in any way the incredible education I got at, at the University of Virginia and at McIntyre was exceptional. I think the best education you could ever get, uh, particularly for, for what I've done with my career. But the, really, the best education I got was over a two or three year period during um, at, a, at a reasonably young age at uh you know getting getting through the snl crisis because it was you know it was a you know you can read a lot you can do case studies in business school and i did all that but there's nothing like 
the real thing where, where, you know, there's life or death of a business at stake, people's livelihoods are at stake, you know, crazy complexity that you're trying to unwind in a very, you know, tense, stressful environment, not an environment where you're reading or writing or looking at something that happened or, you know, a case study from the past, you're in it and it, and, and the intensity is, it can be overwhelming. And so that's the best, best thing ever happened to my career was in a, in a, in a funny sense, the SNL crisis and being deep in the middle of it with a company that was deeply caught up in it because Boy, did it give me, you know, a, a real education uh, on how to take things that are broken and fix them and, and that and help. And then having that help inform how to do things on a go forward basis differently so that you might get you might not find yourself in that position. So amazing um, experience, both on the growth and development side initially and then on the workout side. And then as a result of that, there was somebody we brought in to help um, figure that out who had huge amounts of experience. Uh, it was 20 years my senior, um, and we ended up in this great partnership. And he and I agreed to go out and start a private equity business together um, to take advantage of all the dislocation that was going on at that time in the, you know, as a result of the SNL crisis and the overall real estate crisis. And so for four or five years, we went out, started with nothing but the two of us um, and an, a, an analyst and an administrative assistant. And we were borrowing money and we went out and started this business, sort of a super stressful time. I had just got married. My wife wanted to buy a house. We just bought a house, had our first mortgage. We were thinking about, you know, wanting to start having a fan, you know, building a family, which we did, by the way. I now have six daughters uh, that are 18 to 28, but back then we had, we, we were just, they were a twinkle in our eye as the, as the saying goes. And we went out and started this private equity business. We worked really hard. We had, you know, luck, which is always, you know, part of the core competency is making sure you're in the right place at the right, right time, but you work, you're working really hard to help make that luck. And we built a really nice little private equity business sort of in the 1991 to 95 timeframe. Um, we did a half a billion dollars-ish of transactions. Every single one of them worked out really well because you know there was so much opportunity. There was so much inefficiency in the market at that time. And again, you know, a different kind of education for me. It was, you know, a, a further education on workouts and what not to do and unwinding and fixing, you know, um, things that are broken, you know, either financially or operationally. Um, but it was also wonderful lessons in leadership because we had to build a company. So we ended up, we had four of us when we started. I think we had 30 or 40 of us when we finished, so relatively small, but, you know, it was a, it was a startup, entrepreneurial. He and I owned it. We were building a team from scratch. And, uh, you know, th that was really my, you know, I mean, I, I was obviously when I was at, at, in, in the development area and, and at Oliver Carr, running a pretty big team of people, but in a very different way, not as a, you know, sort of the most senior leader in the business. And so I definitely honed a whole bunch of skills doing that. It was a very successful business. 
Um, I always say, you know, the, the highs were really high when you have your own business and it's a startup because it's like, you know, euphoria when things go your way and the lows are, are really low because you don't, you know, when things aren't going well, you literally don't know if you're going to make payroll, you know, and you got 30 or 40, um, you know, hearts and souls on board and you want to make sure that you're giving them opportunities and, you know, you're starting a business, so you don't have a lot of recurring income. So, it was a, you know, it was an emotional roller coaster. But, you know, again, that's part of the that's part of the learning experience is is, uh, you know, being able to sort of go up, the, you know, and down and being able to be sort of steady and keep your cool and, you know, and uh, keep a steady hand on on the wheel. That will be a, a common theme in my leadership style is have a plan and a strategy and work the plan and keep a steady hand on the wheel. Things go up and down, the world moves left and right, but you know, keep, you know, if you're steady uh, and you have a good strategy and you build a great culture, which I'm sure we'll get to people, people will uh, follow you. Um, and that was a great experience. And then he and I together got recruited to go to a company that was then called Host Marriott, also in the hotel space. It was a very small company that came as a consequence of the splitting of Marriott into two pieces. Bill Marriott uh, ran one side of it, which is a company that's still there today, Marriott International, and this was a company called Host Marriott, now Host Hotels. Um, this was a very small real estate company. The company was split into two to be a um, common theme in my, you know, this part of my career. You'll see the company was um, split into two, and it was sort of good co, bad co. Um, and we were bad co. They were basically separating out the, the management franchise, sort of the cash cow business from some of the things that were more strained, including all the real estate and the debt and other liabilities that went along with it. But we were recruited to come in there. Again, common theme and fix it and then grow it, which we did. Uh, we, you know, we worked very hard to fix all the issues uh, that we inherited. We took the company from, I'll, I'll directionally get it, a $2 billion company. I think when I left, it was a $26 billion company. It went from sort of bad code to, you know, Fortune 500, S&P 500, one of America's most admired companies. And it still is pretty much all those things today. Uh, it has a fabulous team. Uh, the leader uh, is somebody that I, you know, that I brought to the company. I work very closely with. Uh, and I'm really proud of what the team's been able to continue doing. So, you know, we had, you know, we, we another another series of learning experiences again, a fix-it job, intense pressure as a, as a public company, um, throwing a bunch of, you know, big curveballs, um, you know, while, while we were there, um, including... Uh, 9/11 being, you know, and and a recession, you know, being one, but there there were a bunch of others, and sort of learning again to not just fix things, which I know, but to take a company that's small and grow it and do it in a thoughtful way to create value for for shareholders and and other stakeholders to learn how to not just fix and grow, but absorb, you know, be a shock absorber and take huge shocks to the system and be able to lead a company and most importantly the people through um you know through those times um and uh, again very proud of that i then got recruited 
um, to come to Hilton Blackstone on July 4th, uh, 2007. It was announced Blackstone, uh, and I didn't say, but I, I have had a, I had a long-standing relationship with Blackstone. I did a big merger deal with them at Host, and they were our largest shareholder. Uh, Blackstone agreed to take Hilton private, and the leader of Blackstone came to me, who I had known for quite a long time, and said, you're the guy we want to run it. You got. You have all the skills. Look, you've sort of trained your whole career. This is the ultimate experience for you, and you're the ultimate person to do it. And I um, very uh, quickly said no, uh, not not because I didn't think it was interesting, but you know, I was moving my wife, six little kids from you know their ecosystem in the DC area out to Beverly Hills, <laughs> California. Uh, did not did not seem like you know particularly wise thing to do, but the more I thought about it, you know, and talked to my wife about it, we thought it'd be fabulous for for our family. But it was one of the most unique experiences to take all of these different skills that I'd been uh, building throughout my career and uh, and really apply all of them, which was you know partly to you know to fix it definitely to grow it and little did I know but um, you know, also be able to absorb be a shock absorber and be able to manage and lead very a very large group of people through some very difficult times you know starting with the great recession which happened quite quickly after I got here uh, but then you know but then most recently, uh, of course, with, with COVID, which has been devastating to the hotel business. And um, I'm very, we can, we'll talk more about it. I'll take a breath and let you ask me another question. But here we are today. We took Hilton, which was, I described to you, a, I would say, a mediocre performer. We'd been around a long time. We were large, um, but we were a mediocre performer. You know, we had a, a number of brands, but not, you know, half the brands we have today. We were we were not growing very quickly. We we were not driving performance. We were not culturally, you know, one of the most recognized companies. Uh, and today, I would say objectively, you guys can look at the metrics on the metrics that matter. I think we're the leader in the industry. And uh, so I'm quite there. We'll, we can get into how we got there, but I'm quite proud of that. I'm very proud of it as you know, knowing that we're a business of people serving people, all of this has been enabled by um, leadership and building an incredible culture. Chris, it's a remarkable journey. I'm delighted you took the time to kind of walk us through because it, it teaches us there are sort of equal parts serendipity and equal parts preparation and deliberation. And some things were probably accidental. Others were quite deliberate. Uh, let's talk about the people side of the business. You've mentioned this a couple of times, people serving people. I think I read once where you said, there's not a person you spend more time with than your CHRO, your Chief Human Resource Officer. Sure. To, why is that the case? And how has that been a key differentiator? Uh, as you say, Hilton at the top of you know, most of the metrics that matter. What is the role your CHRO and you and their relationship play in supporting what I think you said was 400 thousand yeah. team members across the world. 400,000 team members in 121 or maybe I think 122 countries. So I do spend an immense amount of time with our um, CHRO for obvious reasons. I mean, we're, if you get down to it, I keep saying it, people serving people, we're a service business. 
And while there's a lot that goes into what we do in terms of making sure the product is right, the technology is great, we, you know, our go-to-market strategy and sales and marketing and digital and all these things, um, branding strategies, all of it, you know, plays a huge role. But in the end, in our business, the most important alpha and one being able to deliver generally all of those things, but but most importantly, having a great experience for, for our customers is still the people. And so not only is it a large group of people, but they're the ones that are really ultimately delivering uh, to our customers those incredible experiences. And so, yes, I mean, if, you know, that was, that was sort of, I would say, listen, we had a, we had a good culture historically. I mean, our, our founder, Conrad Hilton, as I said, was way ahead of his time, but like a lot of companies that get to 80 or 90 years old, we sort of, you know, lost our way. And so if you, if you go back, like, and I think about like the people and the culture and, and the, you know, sort of the, yeah, you know, all that goes with it that is that is you know driven by you know our, our CHRO and I and, and everybody in the company. It's all about you know purpose, and you know I would say you know the word purpose can be can be overused. I think it is. We've been using it a long time, so I don't feel like we do, but I think it's sort of become popular. I, I have the view, you know, I could I say I think the world is um, full of purpose washing which is everybody's like now it's popular and they got to say like i got a purpose and you know it becomes a tagline it's like a it's like a uh, a marketing um uh, uh program excuse me been talking a lot today it's like a marketing program as opposed to you know an authentic true north for an organization and so when i got here i knew the place was sort of broken and you know know the culture had been great but wasn't good and there was a lot of apathy and so I started thinking like you know well, boy we gotta we gotta we gotta figure this out and the only way I've ever known to do it is to get people to feel like they're part of something bigger than themselves that what their part is aggregates to with everything else that everybody else is doing to something that matters to them and that can be impactful and that gives them pride and everybody will see it a little bit differently, but you know it when you see it. And that was sort of what was missing here was that we had gotten to be robotic about how we were doing it because we had lost um, sort of our grounding in a, in a real purpose. And so the, when I went back and spent the time doing it, I went, and I, you know, like I spent time with Baron Hilton, the son of the founder who ran the company for 40 years. Um, I, I read, you know, our founder's autobiography, you know, a dozen times. I read all the history of the company, you know, and, you know, as documented, you know, as as the company was evolving. And you realize that, that that our company was one of the most purposeful companies ever, that you had a guy, Conrad Hill, way before his time that founded the company that he thought he could make the world a better place. His whole premise was world people by giving people safe places to stay around the world that they could rely on. They would travel more, they would, they would encourage cultural exchange and understanding that would bring more peace to the world. That's a pretty cool purpose. And that's what our, you know, and so, but we had, nobody was even thinking about that, talking about that. And so what I did, instead of, you know, being a, the new leader that comes in and says like, all right, we're gonna blow everything up. 
I actually, after I finished all that work, I said, listen, it's right in front of us. It's like, you know, a bird's nest on the ground um, that we have this purpose and it, and it propelled us for many, many decades. We just lost sight of it. And so I went back and sort of tapped, used Baron Hilton and the history of the company to get people uh, um, refocused and energized about why we were here together and what we had accomplished historically, but more importantly, if we got ourselves organized and we built a, you know, a, a, a great strategy and we focused on taking care of our people in the right ways, and that we could together have a really uh, tremendous impact in a positive way uh, on the world through impacting all of our stakeholders in a very positive way. And when I started thinking that, you know, it was hard. It was a long journey. And I, you know, I would say it took a huge amount of discipline and persistence because, you know, saying it and doing it are two different things. Even though it was authentic and real in our case, most of the people at the company didn't have a connection to it, right? I mean, the people that had the connection were long gone, even though yeah. it was, you know, you could prove it. And so... It took probably five years that, when I, you know, I would say, I mean, I'm still working on it, so I'm 15 years in, but it took five years where I said, I could really say to myself, it's working, but back to the CHRO, I've had, I've had only two in those 15 years, both who are incredible people, both who are still at the company, and that partnership uh, and that time with, my, with those, those two people and their teams was mission critical to figuring out how to connect the dots and connect people back to that purpose and to actually bring it to life in a way that meant something to, to people of the company that they could touch and they could feel that it wasn't just a historical thing, but they could relate it to something they were doing and we were doing in the moment that inspired them and, and, and uh, engendered a lot of pride in, in what they were doing and in the organization that they were part of. Chris, I think it's inspiring to hear you uh, at the helm of uh, obviously a multi-billion dollar organization with 400,000 people in uh, 121, 122 com countries right now to see your connection to the people side of the business. Let's take it personal. Let's take it to your leadership strategy or your leadership style. Uh, it's a given. You're a visionary. You're strategic. You're operational. You understand culture. Let's talk about the challenges that you face as a CEO. Uh, I want you to think of someone that's reported to you, that perhaps was your detractor, that did not like you, that did not appreciate your <laughs> leadership style. Don't tell that me their name, be, but that, I want you to have that person That's going to be a long, I mean, the good news is that the list is too long. So we, <laughs> well, you know. well, that speaks to self-awareness. So you pass the check uh, uh, test first. Um, when someone is frustrated with you, as a leader, what is it that you're doing or not doing that would frustrate them to the point of where they might choose to leave or sit down and talk to you about it's not working? In essence, I'm asking, what's your biggest area of growth as a leader? Well, I mean, I, you know, I think, that, first of all, kidding aside, I'm sure it's a long list. So any of my you know, team or former team watching this you know, would laugh if I said something different. I mean, think about when I got to the company, I was, I was airlifted in as the new guy in a company that had been around for 90 years and thought they had everything figured out and I wanted to do everything differently. 
And so I would say pretty much everybody at the company would, uh, would have been on that list of being a detractor in that moment. And so, uh, you know, it was a very lonely place for me. I can remember some really bad nights going home where, to be honest, I thought I had made the biggest mistake of my life, that this was, uh, I could not overcome the, um, the gravity that was, that was uh, working against me, that it was just not possible, no matter how hard I tried, that me as one person um, trying to fight the, the, you know, the, the, the assembled masses on the other side of this and the, and the complacency that had been so embedded, it, was, it just wasn't possible. I can, remember going, I can remember going home, you know, like with tears in my eyes driving home and saying, get your act together. Don't let your wife and kids that you just moved from, you know, their little comfortable nest with their family around to California see you like this because that's not, you know, they've got, they've got their own problems. You, you need to be strong. And there were more than a couple nights like that in the beginning because, listen, it's lonely at the top, you know, but it was really, really lonely when, you know, for me, when you get airlifted in and you are, you know, the sandpaper, you are the friction. Um, and so... I know a lot about it. Now, you know, I think that, you know, listen, there are a lot of reasons that people would be frustrated with me. In those days, I'd say the primary one is just being a, a change agent, right? The, 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 the nature of most humans, not all, um, they don't like change. Don't move my cheese, right? They want, you know, they're, they're in a rhythm. You're talking about a company like Hilton that's at that time been around almost 90 years. It's like, who are you coming in to tell us, you know, that we don't know what we're doing? Um, and so nobody liked it. So, but the reality is that's what I was there to do is be a change agent. And so the way I, you know, overcame it was basically creating visibility or transparency or putting the bright lights on the reality of the situation for people so that they could objectively see that what they thought of, of the company was inconsistent with the reality and what the rest of the world thought about the company. Um, and, and, uh, and that I gave people that didn't want to get on the bus um, the op opportunity for us to pull over and let them, let them off. Um, and so it was a combination of people sort of, you know, bringing people along um, and on the journey that would then, you know, start to build a realization that maybe we weren't as good as they thought and set up, you know, and start to you know, gain some acceptance and changing a lot of people, you know, cause there were going to be some people that would, that wouldn't, you know, that were never going to get there. But it, it was, when I say it took five years, at least it did because that that's a real uh, process. Yet, yeah. The other thing, you know, that I'm very, focused on is um, I think it's really important to have diverse thinking and um, I think people can define diversity in a lot of different ways. I think, you know, for me, the, you know, you get it through a lot of different people from different backgrounds and people that look different and think different. But what you're trying to do is get different perspectives. And by getting a diverse group of people, you get different perspectives and giving those perspectives oxygen uh, and I'm 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 very always very focused on that and having, you know, a, a cognitive dissonance or constructive friction 
you know, as part of any team that I'm leading. And I would say that's not always comfortable for everybody. Um, I would say most people that join have joined over time executive committees um, on companies that I'm, you know that I've run. Would you know it's sort of uncomfortable in the beginning because you know people you know feel like you know a debate is friction that is that is uh, you know that's going to cause um, trouble in relationships. And so my I always say like, listen, we want to have debates, but we don't like pick up take our shoes off and throw throw it at each other. Um, we do, we do it, you know, we, we, we have debates, we have, you know, sort of constructive friction in a very civilized way because we get to better answers and without it, we make decisions that may not be the best decisions, including things that I may think and people may go along with it because I happen to be yeah. the boss, but it may be the wrong, it may be the wrong darn thing uh, to do. And so, yeah, that is definitely an area that I think you know, I could get on the, uh, you know, uh, maybe on some people's list. Uh, but again, I, my belief is that in, that is that you want to get there. And so some people don't like it. I get it. And it's maybe not for them. Uh, but but most of the time, I'd say people ultimately understand as they get into it that that it's uh, that it's helpful, that it ultimately allows you to end up making better decisions. I think you called it constructive debate. It's uh, not a coincidence that just last week we aired an episode of this podcast with the CEO of Panera Brands, former president yeah. of, uh, of KFC Global, COO of Krispy Kreme, that talked about a Panera, uh, which owns a whole variety of companies. They have something they call very similarly, they call it dissent, right? Constructive dissent. That yeah. Before they leave any executive team meeting, at least one person has to dissent so that they actually can challenge their ideas and they're not stuck in I love it. I think yeah. that's wise. We, I mean, we don't have it, ex I wouldn't say it the same way, but I, we, we try and end up in the same place. Yeah. I mean, the, the reality is, I say this to people all the time, what happens in a lot of companies, and it, and it certainly has happened here and other companies I've been part of, and I try and squeeze it out, is that people, you know, you don't have the constructive debate, but people disagree. I mean, it's not that they agree with everything that somebody's proposing or that I'm thinking, but what happens is they leave a disagreement and then either move on and, and you end up in a bad place or they end up back channeling and it creates a huge amount of sort of organizational friction. Um, one of the most important things, particularly, you know, I say this to my executive committee all the time. They, if they ever watch this, they'll laugh because I preach it. It's like, even though we have 400,000 people you do not be, um, do not underestimate misalignment with the top ten who are my executive committee ripples down and and is a very big wave when it gets into the midsections and lower parts of the company. And so, one of the ways that you you uh, you you gain that alignment is through this constructive debate, constructive friction you know, airing differences and then ultimately agreeing on a course yeah. of action yeah. and 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 all locking arms uh, and doing it. And then having back channeling going on is very, very divisive. So I have a I have an attitude. It's like if you have a if you disagree with something we're doing and you've had an opportunity to voice and we're, we're I'm creating a very open environment and you don't, you have abdicated your right, right to have a different well you, yeah. you have absolutely yeah. abdicated it, and I don't want to hear about it. 
Yeah, well said. I think at Franklin Covey Company, we're a 40-year-old company, not the size of Hilton. Our brand is quite substantial. One of Bob Whitman's legacies, he was our CEO for 25 years, like yourself, in yep. the hotel business for many decades with the Wyndham. I know, I know, yeah, no. Yeah, really good guy. I think one of Bob's biggest legacies for our company is building a really healthy executive team, of which I was a member, being able to dissent, being able to talk openly and to make sure we're all aligned. Let me pivot. Uh, I know our time is tight. Yep. We're going to end here shortly. Post-pandemic, how has the, to quote you as well, the, the carnage, the devastation that the pandemic has impacted not just on our lives and people we loved and perhaps ourselves that maybe succumbed to it or at least had health issues, it was um, unfathomable in terms of the hospitality industry. It was. I mean, it, it was. It just, words don't describe it. I'd like to not minimize that, but build a bridge beyond that for a moment. How has the pandemic changed you as a leader of one of the largest, most recognized names in hospitality worldwide? How are you different? That's a great question. And, I, you know, we're, we're, we're getting through the pandemic. I'd say we're towards the end of it, Scott. Yes. It's not fully over. It's not fully over. So I, I, I have not... It has been the busiest two years of my life, and the, and the honest truth is, I don't think I, I've not gone back to sort of reflect yet on on how I'm different. I, I would like to believe that I had enough experience in, uh, in getting through various crises, whether it, it, as described, it was the SNL crisis, 9/11, the Great Recession, this, and you know a, a, a dozen other little micro crises around the world that I've dealt with that um, as bad as COVID was, and you're right, it was devastating to people's lives and the business and the like, that I really was pretty well prepared and I had a pretty good playbook that 20 years ago or 30 years ago I didn't have, but as a result of a lot of experiences, a lot of great mentors, you know, let's be honest, a lot of great trial and error and just having to live through and manage through these things, I was, you know, I was in a, you know, I, I was in a pretty good place to sort of manage us through it with the fundamental belief that back to what I said earlier, steady hand on the wheel. So, you know, I guess what it did is it, it reinforced that belief that I've always had more than ever, which is when things are really, really bad, what do people want? I mean, when things are good, as I said, they want a true north. They want to know that you know, they're part of something bigger than themselves. Um, they want to know that tomorrow could be better than today. And when things are really, really bad, it's more important than ever that they feel like that they are part of something bigger than themselves. And most importantly, that there is a tomorrow. And so, you know, all of my time during COVID, if you really look at it, we had a lot of financial issues, growth issues, all of there were thousands of issues. But the most important, as you can tell, I care a lot about our culture, was was managing, you know, what was the but as as fortune, a great place to work would tell us the number one culture in America, the number two at that time in the world to manage our way through that and keep people's, um, you know, head up, looking forward and 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 uh, with the belief that. While it's bad, it will get better. And that while we're getting through this, we are going to make a positive difference like we always have, even when we are hobbled by, you know, the impact of COVID. And so, I, you know, 
I don't think it changed me, but I think it made me realize in this way it did, I guess, as you see, I'm sort of thinking it through for the first time. It made me realize not only was I right, but um, boy, was I right. Meaning like, you know, when you, when you have a business that goes to zero revenues, I mean, no businesses built, I've been through some bad times, but COVID, the whole world shut down all pretty much at the same time. Nobody could travel, zero revenues. It's hard to get people to believe. <laughs> and so, you know, all of my time during COVID was to make sure that we had a plan, to make sure that it was a rational plan, that we could break it into pieces and that people could take pieces of it and get things done uh, and keep, you know, keep their spirits up and recognizing bit by bit by bit that things would stabilize uh, and get better. It definitely, like all of us, I would say, be un it would be, it would be unfair not to say like it made me appreciate, you know, simple things in life, right? It made me, you know, it was as terrible as it was. I'll say, you know, my kids. I said I have six daughters, eighteen to twenty-eight. Um, you know, and I, I, you know, I loved being a father. I loved being a father. I loved it when they were little and all that. Now they're all growing up. It's a different world. Well. We sort of went back in time. It was like getting in a time capsule and going back 10 or 15 years because they all came home from all over the country, you know, at the beginning. And uh, like all, I like everybody, you know, sort of like re reminded me, not that I really lost sight of it, but I'm, you know, I'm traveling all over the world. I'm moving fast. It reminded me um, just how important those, those uh, elements of life are and balance in life. And I, I suspect we all, as a result, in our own ways of experiencing COVID, whatever whatever those were, personal and professional, um, I, I suspect we all sort of, you know, got regrounded in our own, you know, you know, making sure that we have the right priorities in life. So, you know, clearly, you know, for me, I, I think that would be the takeaway. It reinforced your prioritization in life matters a lot. Like you can't do everything. So whether it's in business. You can you can run around with like a chicken with your head cut off, but focusing on the things that matter. In our case, focusing on culture, it matters more than ever. And we, you know, couldn't help but have, you know, impacted the culture because of COVID. So working on that, and then personal life, um, you know, grounded in your family and friends, and making sure that you know you're only on this earth so long and making sure that you have the right balance in life and that you prioritize the, those that mean the most to you and you make sure that you spend the time with them and that when you do, you're present with them. Chris Nassetta, CEO of Hilton Worldwide, remarkable journey to the C-suite conversation podcast today. Thank you for sharing your experiences. Thoroughly enjoyed the conversation. Proud to be a member of the Hilton Honors Rewards Program. Many hundreds of nights in your hotels yeah, around the world. You're a like diamond. I hope you're a lifetime diamond member. We want everybody to be. <laughs> I think I'm very close, sir. Chris, thank you again all right. for investing Thanks. in all of our viewers and listeners. Nice talking to you. Thank you. Nice talking to you. And we'll see you back here next week for a new conversation with someone in the C-suite. Thanks for joining us.